Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. My guest today is Tara Schuster, who burst into our hearts with the 2020 best-selling collection of essays, Buy Yourself the Fucking Lilies. Now she's back with her second book, Glow in the Fucking Dark, which shows us it is possible not only to emerge on the other side of trauma successfully, but to glow like a star and smile while you're doing it. The only thing I'm going to say is read her books. They will make you laugh. They will make you cry. And hopefully they'll make you want to start a journal. So without further ado, Tara Schuster, welcome to Group Text. A long time no see. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Excited to have you. So we met at a lunch and we were seated next to each other and we just chit-chatted the whole time because you have had a fascinating life. I mean, first of all, let's just get superficial, okay? I have to say, the cover is so pretty. (laughs) Look at that. It's been on my nightstand. It's beautiful. And thank you. But this is not as pretty as the covers. This is not a book about beauty tips and what's the new thing glowing up, which is just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. This is real stuff that is so relatable. It it almost makes you if you're you're having a tough time that you found a friend along the way. Okay, give people a quick overview of what it means to glow in the fucking dark. Yeah, well, I guess I'll back up and kind of give context for like, what even is any of this? Because I was an executive at Comedy Central. I was in TV. That was my whole life plan. You know, I didn't set out to write self-help books. Actually, I set out to save my life. Um, I grew up in a super neglectful, psychologically abusive house where things came to die. Uh, the plants, you know, like not to start with a bummer, but pretty big bummer uh, and unfun. And I just, you know, to cut a long story short, and you can read all the details and buy yourself the fucking lilies. Um, I basically had to escape my house. And the way I did it was through external validation. You know, I'll get all A's, I'll take all the APs, and then I'll get into an Ivy League college, and then it'll save my life. You know, and of course, I get to the Ivy League university. And I'm like, oh, no, all I have is an addiction to weed. And I don't know myself. Uh, What am I going to do? And so I kept I I really I didn't have any role models. I didn't have any mentors. So I just thought, okay, keep hustling, keep hustling. I really quickly uh, rose the ranks at Comedy Central. My first job was an internship on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, which was incredible. But I, I just kept, kept, kept going. And um, I was really good at work, but bad at life. So when I wasn't at work, I would be the girl sobbing on the subway next to you. You know that girl and she's got like too many bags. She's like covered in bags and she's crying and her face is red. Like that was me six of seven days a week. And I, you know, so I kept hustling, kept falling apart. I had severe anxiety and complex trauma problems. And I might have kept going this way, except on my 25th birthday, I drunk dialed my therapist and threatened to kill myself. Well, at least you drunk dialed your therapist. Um, (laughs) I think I may have done that once or twice, but the opening scene of the book, you're driving like an absolute lunatic through the desert with your therapist on the phone. You had been let go at Comedy Central. She tells you to pull over. Yes. 
why did that simple command resonate with you? So, you know, as I was saying, external validation, that was everything for me. And I got uh, very unceremoniously laid off from Comedy Central. And you have to understand that Comedy Central was my identity. People would introduce me, Tara Schuster, Comedy Central, like it was my married last name. And and that's where I got all my status, all my self-worth from. So when I got laid off, it was the pandemic. I was single. I was in my apartment alone with no more distractions all my worst traumas, the things I thought I could never, uh, I couldn't even think about them, much less fix them. They all bubbled up to the surface. And in a very wise decision, I decided, you know what, instead of dealing with any of this, I'm going to get a job as an election worker in Arizona, and I'm just going to move there and like save the world, (laughs) like a new distraction. I will follow that logic. I get it. I get, I totally right? get it. I couldn't stop moving. And so on the highway, so I'm on Highway 40 on the Mojave Desert. I've decided to move to Arizona with basically I grabbed my Vitamix. Like that's <laughs> those were the possessions I brought with me. And I had the worst associative episode of my entire life. And if you haven't had one, it's basically your brain is trying to protect you from awful things that it doesn't think you can handle. So the experience is like you're out of your body and it makes you feel full body sick. So I'm driving, I'm going 95. And if you know me, I should not be going 95. I should not be speeding at all. I have my hands on the wheel and I know they're my hands logically, like I get it, but they're floating above the steering wheel and I am out of control. And so my therapist called me. Thank God. Wait, so you, Hallelujah. Amen. You, so you actually yeah. look down and feel and see that your hands are floating. They were not actually floating. No, no, they were not floating. Um, It felt like I was outside of my body. And even talking about it gives me a little bit of the, the sickness that you feel. And anyone who's had one, it, it's just... It makes you want to throw up all of your insides because that would feel better than how you currently feel. So I, the, my hands were firmly on the steering wheel. They did not appear to be. And my therapist called me and she said, you know, are um, uh, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm moving to Arizona. Duh. Going to get a new life. She's like, okay. Um, and I explained, you know, I'm going 95. I'm, I feel like I'm having a panic attack and a dissociative order, a dissociative episode, and it's awful. And she's like, "Well, are you safe?" And I'm like, "Yeah, of course I'm safe. I'm just going 95. I'm just going 95 on the on the freeway. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it." And she's like, "Okay, that's not safe. You need to pull over." And it was in that moment that I realized I have been hustling, running, going, avoiding since forever. And it doesn't work because I feel full body sick and like my hands are floating above a steering wheel. This is a new low. And so I pulled over to the side of the highway and, um, you know, to get back to your first question, what does it mean to glow? Because I had decided to go at night, great decision, moved to Arizona dead of night. I, you know, there was no light pollution. I was in the desert. And I pulled over and I looked up at the stars and maybe it's because I live in LA and when you think it's a star, it's actually an airplane. Absolutely. JK, JK, there were no stars in the sky. Um, But I looked up and it felt like I was in a star field. You know, I I couldn't describe, it was 
unbelievably gorgeous. And what I remembered about stars in that moment is that we are made of stars, not in a cutesy way, not in a way that I'd write on a Hallmark card. The carbon in our muscles, the iron in our blood, legit come from stars. And as I looked at those stars, you know, in a hyper-partisan time, we all still agree stars are dope as hell. Yeah. Stars, like nobody's questioning our stars amazing, our stars miraculous. No. And I just thought if that's within me and if those stars can glow in a bleak night, and I remember it was a bleak time too, 2020, Oof. you know, best time of all of our lives. Oh, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> like a total party all the time. Yeah. I just thought, can I glow like those stars do? I have that within me. Can I glow? And that was really the beginning of a journey to find who am I when my job is taken away? I don't have a partner. I'm all by myself and I have to face what's within me. Who am I without that status, without somebody else telling me who I am? I completely, completely relate to that on, you know, in my own life. You know, I, when my mom passed, not only did I lose my mother, not only did I lose the one person I knew who would be on my side through thick and thin, I lost my work partner. I lost, Mm -hmm. I I was losing, I I was on the precipice of losing everything that was my identity. Luckily, we brought fashion police back for another two years. But I remember those moments laying in bed and thinking, who am I? And I think everybody still kind of struggles with that. I know I do. Um, But I completely, completely understand. And I made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And not only till about four years after did I realize all the bad decisions I was making, specifically in a relationship, and got out, which was Mm -hmm. one of the hardest things I ever had to do, but the most important and probably the best. And I'm, I'm, I'm removing motherhood from all of this because that has always been my greatest priority. But again, I'm in a situation where so much of my identity is wrapped up in being a mom. And now my son's graduating from college and he's never, well, I mean, he'll still come home, but you know, this is going to be the last summer probably that I actually have him in my home before he flies like a little bird but um, so I, I I completely relate to that um, not in your stomach when we identify so much by our labels. Absolutely. And I mean, that was one of the biggest truths I learned, which basically nobody wants to hear, which is anything external to you. If that's what your identity is wrapped up with, if you've given the keys to your life to something else it's going to be a bumpy ride. Even something, I'm not a mom, but I have a lot of readers who are, who are in the same position where they've invested all of their time, their energy, their love, of course. And in the meantime, they didn't have an identity that was their own. And so we all face this over and over and over again, if our identity is based on anything external. But if our identity is based on how do I show up in the world, If we actually, I call it, I have a values filter, you know, where I know what my values are 
at any given moment. It makes decision-making way easier. It makes how I spend my time way easier because I know myself at such um, a core level. And so, I mean, nobody, you know, I was once um, nominated for an Emmy and I usually hate Emmy season because, ugh, it's like, you know, it's like TV prom and you're like, oh my God, yeah, I'm going to sit in this auditorium and it's going to be awful. I mean, and, and where is where is my seat? Am I in the good yeah. section? You know, the whole which thing. I never was. Yeah, and you know, so I hated, hated, hated Emmys until I got nominated for one, and then I'm like, yeah, Emmys—they're like the best thing that ever happened. I'm so happy. And as I told you, I had a dad and mom who were super, super neglectful. I told my dad, "Oh my god, I got nominated for an Emmy," and it was the first time he ever said in my 30 plus years on planet Earth first time he said, I'm really proud of you. Wow. And I was just like, I made it. Like I did it. I'm complete. The Emmy completes me. And now forever, it's going to be Tara Emmy nominated Tara Schuster. It's going to be my PhD. Right. You know, so, so excited. And I'm out at a work dinner with um, my colleagues and I get a phone call from my boss's boss's boss. That's By the way, when you see that come up, it's never good. No, it's like my, I'm like, oh no, am I fired? You know, I like, this is gonna be horrible news no matter what it is. And he says to me, you know, about that Emmy nomination, like, yeah, you know, it's not really a good look for an executive to be on the Emmy nomination. And let me explain what that means. I had been a producer and that's what I was nominated for, but I switched over to the executive side. And so he was saying as an executive, you know, he said, it's not a good look with talent. I mean, what are people, you know, because basically as an executive, you don't want to take credit for somebody else's work. Right. But I, but I explained, but wait a minute, I did the work. And basically right now I'm just working two jobs. It's not like I stopped producing. It's just like much, much worse. And he said, you know, that's sort of the way it is. and, And you've got a big choice to make. And I realized what he was saying was, you need to unnominate yourself. And unnominating myself was one of the most humiliating, embarrassing, terrible experiences because it had meant so much to my dad. Right. And and because it had been so public, you know, and I thought, oh my God, are all my friends, when they don't hear my name, are they going to think I was a liar? You know, what, what are people going to think? And it was really in that moment, I had another one of those come to Jesus moments of my worth cannot be tied to anything external because anything external can be taken away. But the reason I got that nomination was I was working with uh, genius comedians. I worked my ass off to make this incredible web series. It was the thing that I had poured my heart and soul into. That was beautiful. And that was wonderful. And that process made me feel prouder of myself than I ever had. And that was just like the biggest slap in the face example of process over outcomes. You can't, you cannot be attached to the outcome. You can be really attached to how did I conduct myself? Was I creative? Was I a good collaborator? All those things I can control and all those things are my identity. But the shiny statue, you know, meanwhile, if anyone wants to nominate me for an Emmy, I'm totally down. I was going to say that (laughs) executive (laughs) slash producer thing we shall now know as the Andy Cohen conundrum. 
Oh, yes. I, I was an early Andy Cohen. Yes, you were. Exactly- <laughs> Look at that validation I just gave you. Thank you, Melissa. Uh, you are Thank so you. welcome. I want to touch on a couple of things, that, buzzwords that you, the hierarchy of pain. Mm, what yeah. exactly does it, because we all have gone through pain. Yes. Yes. So I, most of us, I, or I believe most of us, I know for sure a lot of us, we believe that we don't have a right to feel as bad as we do. So you might have a childhood. Just for my example, I grew up uh, in an open construction site where the foundation was literally constantly shifting. And one of my first words was pylons, because that's how often they talked about needing to prop up the house. Um, And even still in my 20s, I thought, well, I I have constant anxiety to the point where I'm literally kneading at my like breast because that's where my anxiety not lives as I walk down West 11th Street. I look crazy. I was crazy. Um, And I would think, well, I didn't have the worst childhood ever. I don't have a right to feel as bad as I feel. I should feel better. I have food on the table. I have a, you know, And so what we do is we deny our pain because we think, well, somebody else had it worse. Somebody else had it worse. I don't deserve to feel this way, which is just about the most toxic thing you can do because when you don't acknowledge your own pain and you resist it, it persists. It even gets bigger and much, much worse. And it's not like you helped somebody else that you perceive to have had it worse than you. And actually, that's pretty condescending that you think, Oh, well, they must be so bedraggled, this person in my mind. So it's ineffective, it's condescending, and it doesn't help anybody for you to deny your pain. The really brave, courageous thing is to say, I am allowed to feel the way I do. It really doesn't matter if it was the worst case scenario or just middle if, if this is how I feel, I need to take care of it. And I, I have to give credit to Lori Gottlieb, who coined the term, the hierarchy of pain. My mom used to have a saying, which was, you allow yourself a weekend wallow. Mm. You get basically a weekend to feel sorry for yourself. And then you stand up and you get your act together and you keep going. One of the buzzwords that I know that you don't use like this, that's really under my skin right now is trauma. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like it's become a word to excuse everything at all times. As a matter of fact, I just had a conversation with my son because we have these, he's an adult, we have these these conversations. And I said to him, we were talking about someone else. And I said to him, I go, you know what? Everybody has childhood dr- trauma. I go, try growing up in my house with my yeah. crazy parents. We all have childhood trauma. We all have all this shit that's happened in our lives. But I feel like the word trauma is so used as an excuse nowadays. It's thrown around so liberally. And I said to Cooper, everyone's got it. You talk to someone, you go to therapy, you work it out, you let it go, you don't necessarily forget it, but you realize that you're one of many and there's almost, you know, comfort in the numbers and you don't let it own you. You get, you know, I'm like, sure. I had lots of times that I was angry at my parents and I would blow up and, you know, to the day my mom died, we would fight 
because that's what mothers and daughters or mothers and fathers or mothers and sons and fathers, we do. That's what we do. It's part of growing up and breaking away. You fight. And then as an adult, you find other things you don't get along with them. But I said to Cooper, I'm like, yeah, everybody's angry. Everybody's pissed off. Everybody's had trauma. Go to therapy, talk about it, deal with it, let it go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first time, one of the first chapters in my book is basically the first time I heard the word trauma, I just wanted to throw up in my mouth. I was like, ew, no, I didn't have trauma. I just went through some stuff. It's not that big of a deal. And here's here's sort of how I see it, which is, yes, we all have trauma. It's actually not that special nor unique. Another word to use is suffering. You hear about it in every single religion. We're all suffering. Something bad happens to us. It makes us believe a story about ourselves. You know, so in my case, my parents neglected me. Therefore, I must be unvaluable. I'm not worthwhile. Right. I exited my, my childhood thinking... I'm not worthy, which had all kinds of consequences. When you think you're not worthy, okay, now you're going to make a bunch of decisions. And what I'm advocating is, okay, that's not so special. There are many, many, many people who have been through that, right? But we really do have to own it and heal it. And so it's never an excuse. It's never an excuse to treat people poorly. Really what it is is a flag that says, hey, I need to deal with this. I need to heal it for my benefit so that I'm not living in an anxiety cloud of depression, horror, blame. Like who wants to live that way, first off? Um, and second off, I don't want to act that way in the world. So another way to think of your trauma is, wow, there's a flag in the ground. I know I have to heal this thing. This is now my responsibility. I have to own it. But it's never an excuse. Um, you can feel compassion for somebody. Mm -hmm. You can say, oh, well, I really feel compassion for for what they've been through and I'd like to help them. But it's never a, and that excuses how they treated me that, you know what I mean? But don't you find that nowadays, and it's just something that I've, that we all notice now with the whole, you know, overly PC. And I find that people, instead of doing what you're doing, which is very practical, and it's the same thing we all do, hopefully, and maybe using different terminology, you know, my mother's generation would say, oh, get over it. That didn't right. mean, well, for some people, it meant just ignore it. But for people like us, it meant, okay, deal with it, get over it. And I find the word, I find that we've become a very victim society and the word trauma has become the 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 descriptor for all right. behavior. It's like everyone's saying, I, did you grow up with a safe space? God knows I didn't, you know? And I, yeah. I, I find that all sort of wraps up into it. But what I found so interesting is you don't use the word trauma that way, which I like a lot. Um, one of the things you talk about is journaling. Mm -hmm. Okay, but before we go into journaling... I have failed journaling, I have failed meditation, and I have failed sleep. And this is how I know these things. And I'm trying to still make peace with some of it. Um, I found that when I tried to journal, it felt like a chore. And then if I missed it, and oh my God, and then I, I wouldn't go into my, I'm not worthwhile, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm so bad, I can't do this. And I did that when I would sit trying to learn how to meditate and think about that I wasn't meditating correctly or questioning how it was about to feel. And then I had one of those aura rings 
and oh, uh-huh. it became oh, no. so overwhelming. I would be scared to look at the results in the morning because it was like, wow, you're bad at this. And like, I can't fail sleep. But why does journaling work for you? And are there alternate things you can do? Yeah. So I've been a journaler, consistent journaling for 12 years. And the only reason I started journaling was because I was threatening to kill myself and I was the girl on the subway crying and my life sucked. And a friend said to me, have you ever thought about journaling, about writing about your experience? There's science behind it. It's supposed to be really helpful. And she was like way more privileged than me, you know, like family has a last name that's known throughout the world. And she's just got this townhouse in the West Village and all these things. And I'm like, okay, maybe journaling works for you. Somebody who had this like white picket picket fence uh, life, but it's certainly not going to work for me. So to spite her and to prove what an awful, awful idea this was, journaling, who cares? What do you, It's for 15-year-old girls, not for me, not with my real problems. I decided, okay, I'm going to journal just to prove wrong. And as I started journaling, which was basically just a brain dump, like I was just without a censor. Um, if, if anyone has read The Artist Way by Julia Cameron, she has a, a practice called the morning pages. So I was doing the morning pages and you just word vomit everything that's on your mind, three pages every morning. And it really felt like all this chaos I had in my head was now distanced from me on the page. And I find that that's one of the most effective things about journaling is it just gives you some breathing room, some perspective. And once it's on paper, it's way easier to deal with with your issues, with what's going on in your life. And so for people who, you know, the habit doesn't come naturally, first off, of course, journaling sucks. What? Who wants to spend, you know, for me, it's 20 minutes every morning. Who wants to do that, right? Until it becomes a ritual, a habit. So what I always say to people is make it beautiful for yourself. Like I light a dip tea candle. I've got my coffee. You know, sometimes I'm spraying uh, witchy stuff into the air. I make it like this whole beautiful, pleasurable experience instead of, oh my God, I have to journal today on another chore. And if I skip a day, it's just journaling. Who cares? It's it's like not a big deal. And that's the big thing with um, self-care tools that I advocate over and over again. They're not there to make you feel bad about yourself. They're there to help you and give you some structure. So if you, you know, quote unquote, can't meditate, which I don't even know what that means because the whole practice of meditating is getting lost and then coming back to yourself. We don't need to punish ourselves for trying to take care of ourselves. And so, you know, journaling, a uh, one tip I talk about in Glow in the Fucking Dark is I give you an emotion wheel. And that's because so many of us have completely lost touch with our emotions. You know, for me, the, the emotions I thought I had were bad, good, sad, busy, tired. And, and like, that was how I ex- like would describe my miracle of human existence stardust self. That, that was it. And I realized there got to be other ways that I feel. And so in the book, I give you an emotion wheel where you can really see, oh, I'm not anxious. I'm actually furious at my boyfriend. Oh, I'm not just depressed. I have a real reason to be grieving something. And there's a lot of science. The fancy science term behind this is called affect labeling, 
Um, but it really, I mean, scientifically, the studies say it lessens symptoms of anxiety, depression, all sorts of benefits, just writing down how you feel. So if, if, if you're like, I don't want to journal, this is too much of a big deal, get an emotion wheel and every morning, just ask yourself, what am I feeling? That would be an awesome journaling practice. And you don't have to write in beautiful prose. No, it's not for anybody else. My journal looks like a drunken toddler, you know, wrote it. It's my handwriting is awful. It's it's not a product. It's not something you're going to sell. It's not about your brand. It's not about, you know, anything like that. It's just a word vomit of this is who I am. And, you know, you talk about I agree that terms like safe space, trauma, narcissism in particular are really being bandied about and kind of have lost meaning because not every ex-boyfriend is a narcissist. Many are. Many are. Not- many, many, many are. <laughs> many are. Yes, many but are. But not every. No. Maybe he was just a jerk. You know, like, yeah. So um, what I find really effective, so for my form of journaling isn't, um, I'm writing this narrative of the pain of the, my life. It's just a tool that on a daily basis kind of uh, gives you perspective. You can check back in with how you feel and you can do something about it. Because if you realize, oh, I'm not just a wash of of anxious, I'm furious. Now I have about 10 action steps I can take to help myself as opposed to, you know, I hate when people say, well, I was just born an anxious person. Really? That's just like a diagnosis of your life? Or do you experience anxiety some of the time? You know, I, I think it's good to have these diagnoses, but not great when it when a diagnosis becomes your personality. What I what I love about the way you approach things is, and it's how I approach things, which is probably why we had we bonded at lunches. I'm very realistic, which yes. you are too. Like you said, you know, you're not anxious, you're angry, and that's what's making you feel anxious because you're going to have to deal with this person. That yes, kind of a thing. Exactly. Um, and I feel like nowadays, again, we're such a hyper, almost over therapied society. No one is taking responsibility for themselves. And it's everybody yeah. else's fault. How do we, especially the younger generation, everything's an excuse. How do we teach the younger generation to stop making excuses. I mean, I know that I do it with my son because that's how it was done with me, which is we're just straight up about it. I mean, I always say if you want to change the world starting today, really start addressing what has happened to you, the situations you've been in, because as you heal yourself, you actually become a model to other people of how they can heal themselves and you show up in the world differently as a more compassionate, grounded person. And I agree, you know, there's, um, I'm really thrilled that people are taking care of their mental health and realizing, wait a minute, I'm like, people are no longer asleep at the wheel. Many people are no longer asleep at the wheel. They're self-aware enough to know, okay, I have issues, but where both of my books kind of take, I think, a different tact um, than a lot of self-help that you read is what I'm saying is own it. Own your whole story. Own every good, bad thing that happened to you. Own it. Because once you take responsibility, I'm not to blame for my parents abusing me. I am absolutely not to blame. And it's my responsibility to take care of it now. 
because I don't want that dictating the story of my life, which it will. You know, I always say that which you do not deal with will deal with you. It doesn't go away. No. It, I mean, it just, it doesn't. Suppressing obviously doesn't work. And so some of the things like journaling, you know, if if I were to talk to somebody, and I do a lot of my Gen Z readers, I talk about step one, get self-aware, start journaling, just get any perspective on what the hell is even going on. What are your issues? Ask yourself in your journal, what even are my issues? You will be shocked to see how quickly, you know, way more than you think, you know, and then it's about taking practical steps. I think that actually is why we get along so well. I am all about practical, free, like, nuts and bolts way to help your mental health. Um, and there are so many, both of my books and Glow in the Fucking Dark in particular are full of small rituals you could do today that would not cost you a penny that would markedly help you heal. And, you know, in the book, you know, maybe I'm not being so funny right now. I think I'm pretty funny in written words. You know, it's not like a slog of a depression of a book. It's supposed to entertain you and give you these rituals. So I completely agree. Blame, it's, there's another word for it. It's called learned helplessness. Ooh. That's how they talk about it. Yeah, in psychiatry. So this is the concept that once you think you can't do something, you continuously prove it to be the point. And so they see this a lot with like helicopter parents. So if you take over your kid's project, what you are implicitly telling your child is that they're not good enough, smart enough to complete it on their own, that they need you to step in, which creates a feel like learned helplessness. They learn that they cannot help themselves. And we do it to ourselves when we say something like, I can't quit smoking and then keep saying, I can't do this. I can't do that. Um, there's this idea of neuroplasticity, which means these thoughts that you have, they're not benign. They create actual neural pathways in your brain. So if you think something like, I am unlovable and nobody's ever going to love me, that becomes true because you're etching it in your brain and then we behave based on what we believe. So you make it truer and truer and truer. And so what I'm saying is everybody pause, take a chill pill for like one second, Remember, we have so much agency in our lives. There's always a baby step, always a baby step we can take for our own healing and take that step. On the other side of it, where I'm, of all, I could really blame my parents. A lot of, and people are shocked that I have a relationship with my dad. Um, in many cases, somebody would have said like, absolutely not. I don't blame him. He went through God knows what, I, I have to take care of myself. It is what it is. I have to take care of myself. Now, that means I still have boundaries with him. Mm -hmm. I still protect myself, but it doesn't blame. It doesn't help anyone. Acknowledging, oh, that was really terrible, and it made me believe that I was worthless. That's just acknowledging. That's acknowledging the truth. And now it's my responsibility to own my story, change my narrative, and basically write my way, create my way into the person I want to be, which is a much better way to live. And you just brought it up at the end of the book. You have a very honest account about your relationship with your father and sort of by proxy, your mother and the boundaries. But I would think another way to look at boundaries, which I think is such a powerful thing, is forgiveness. Yes. Where you're, that, you might yeah. not be forgiving them for the actual actions, but you can forgive them 
or as I always say, always remember they did the best they could. Yeah. And I also think forgiveness is a topic we might give too much airtime to. Okay, you forgive them, you don't forgive them, whatever. For me, it took me 15 years to forgive my mother. It doesn't, you can't force forgiveness. So I almost take it off the table Mm -hmm. and say, let me just deal with how this affected me. Let me, let me just take care of me. And in the process, as you heal yourself, you let go, you let go, you let go until one day you find, wow, I actually, so my mom, you know, horrible physical investigations of my body. We basically never had a conversation. She just would tell me like, you're going to be a Nobel prize winning scientist. Like, I'm pretty sure I'm in a ballet recital (laughs) with a feather boa, you know, like trying to change, like from the beginning, trying to change me. Um, and then and much worse things, awful. And as I healed myself and realized how painful, how much I had suffered, I realized, oh my God, what kind of suffering must my mom be in if this is how she treats people? If she's in the position where she's abusing her own daughter, what did she go through and what hell does she live with in her mind? And I have great compassion for her because I know what suffering feels like. I went to the bottom of the well of my suffering. That's awful. And I don't need to invite her back into my life. I have compassion for her. I'm so sorry for whatever she's been through. And it's really up to me. You know, in the book, I talk boundaries also is a very overused word. Mm-hmm. Another way, another way to think about boundaries is a loving action you take. So with my mom, it's so that she's no longer in the position to dishonor herself over and over and over again. Um, and with my dad, I stopped talking to him for two years so that I could deal with my own set of issues. It was very difficult. It was COVID. And all these families are coming together. Right. And I'm like, peace, peace, dad. Like, I'm we're out. not speaking. Yeah. Yeah, I'm out. Uh, enjoy your life. Bye. And, you know, he's like 77 at the time. And the reason I did that was because I couldn't, I was always helping him. I was always his parent. And I needed to reparent myself and help myself. And so two years later, he got COVID. And I thought, oh my God, it doesn't matter. I've got to talk to my dad. And what I found out was in the preceding two years, he had gone to therapy to figure out why is my daughter not talking to me? And he had basically become a new person. You know, and I know this isn't common for everybody, but he was at the point where he wanted to change, where he realized something was wrong and he wanted me back in his life. So my boundary was an opportunity for him to reevaluate himself and act differently. Because if you if you don't put up any boundaries, it's a very selfish thing to do because you're not being real with the people around you. You're not giving them a chance to change their behavior. And if you just keep accepting what you're being given, why would they change? Like, like literally, what reason would my dad have to change if I just kept acting the same? Not. So in these, you know, right? And so in these family dynamics, somebody has to be the truth teller. That's another way to say boundaries. Somebody has to tell the truth. You know, this is a messed up dynamic. It's hurting me. Every time my dad called, I don't want to talk to him. It was degrading our whole relationship. You know, it was awful. So I told the truth. This isn't working. 
We need to try something else. We just need to make a different choice. The choice is I am not going to talk to you right now. Enjoy. And truly, if you talk to my dad today, he would say that was one of the best things anyone ever did for him because it really gave him a reason to investigate his own life. Tara Schuster, glow in the fucking dark. So good. So helpful. I could talk to you forever. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. I loved this conversation. Ahura Media Production.